0: Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, to make a comment uh, on that last song. It's the first time I've sung that song in light of the series that we are talking about. And uh, my prayer for you is that... Uh, as we study doctrine and as we study God's Word, that it translates into worship. Um, and that when we, when we read that chorus, uh, and we, your daughters and your sons, will see your kingdom come in your city, and you will reign in brilliant light, forever glorified in your city. Um, and today, we're going to talk about that city Particularly as it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And how we are in the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom. Uh, tomorrow, or next week i rather, we're going to look more at the implications and applications of today's topic for us. We're going to look at that next week. But this week, we're going to look yeah. primarily at how the fourth epic of Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. And uh, it is nice and loud. I guess it's going to make a little bit of a difference. We had to make some adjustments to the wall. So uh, uh, if you all won't get distracted, I'll try not to get distracted. Um, it's probably more on me than it is on you. but uh, So we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills... Everything that Scripture has been talking about is fulfilled in Jesus. And let me get this out from the very beginning here. Everything that Scripture points to, I believe and I think we'll see today, is fulfilled already in Christ. It's already fulfilled in Christ then what happens from that point is the coming of that kingdom. The reality of that kingdom. So there's a sense in which the kingdom is already here. And then there's a sense in which the kingdom has not yet come. And it's more of better understood maybe as not come in its totality or in its full reality from our perspective, but in Christ is The full reality of the kingdom. So, with that said, how many of you own a mirror at the house? How many of you own a mirror? Do you own a mirror? Well, do you rent a mirror? You know, is it there? Uh, Maybe you don't own the house, but uh, maybe it's there. How many of you you looked in a mirror this morning? My glasses. Who looked in a mirror this morning? I did not. Uh, so you can see my hair is crazy. Uh, I'm just kidding. I looked in a mirror. Um, Have you ever noticed, anybody look in the mirror when they brush their teeth? Why? Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, I mean, I do, but all ends up happening is splattering stuff, you know, on the mirror. I mean, anybody else? (laughs) Says the dentist's son, keep your lips shut. But I'm like, you know, as if I can't tell what part of my mouth I'm in. I need a mirror to see. Um, <laughs> what do you see in that mirror? Other than maybe speckles of toothpaste. You see, you see teeth, right? You, you see your, the back wall. No. You see yourself, right? You see yourself. Has anybody ever looked in like a, one of those carnival mirrors? Yeah, some of us feel really good about ourselves when we look in the carnival mirror. The one that makes us look taller and skinnier. Um, that's me. I like that. It's a little taller, a little skinnier. Some of those make you look a little shorter, a little fatter. Some, some of those make your face look long. And, and Goofy, what, what do you see there? You see yourself, right? I mean, it's a reflection of you or me, but it's a distorted reflection of you. Or me? It is us that we see there. It's just not the true reality of who we are. It's distorted. Uh, we took CHAP recently to um, Intertrainment Junction. It's in northern Cincinnati. It's like all kinds of trains, and, and they have this, like, big fun. Uh, kind of. You guys remember Discovery Zone? Anybody ever take their kids to Discovery Zone or go there yourself? Yes? Uh, they have one of those big play jungle gyms, and then they have this, like, other section that is, like, all these different, like, carnival mazes, and, and they have this, like, mirror room where you walk in, and there's, like, four different ways to choose, but three of them are mirrors, and one is it, One of them is the actual way you need to walk, uh, and so you just see a reflection of yourself all around you. Well, we had to watch Chap, right, because he doesn't understand the concept and so we were getting really proud of him, he was doing a good job, Well, we get to the kind of, like, we didn't know it was towards the end, but it happened to be towards the end, and we started to get a little more relaxed with Chapman, and all of a sudden, he just takes off, like, running, okay, and just goes, bam, <laughs> bam, felt so bad after I got done laughing, um, but it was quite terrible, uh, but we see mirrors and we see reflection of ourselves. And scripture gives a metaphor that in scripture we see the reality of who we are. It's like a mirror. Uh, and I would argue that even when we look into a mirror, it's only a reality of who we are in our finite minds and in, from our perspective. But it's not truly who we are as Scripture defines us. And the challenge for us today is to know who we really are. To know the reality of our being. And so today, I want to help us discover our true identity as we read about Jesus. The goal to which the Old Testament and all of Scripture finds its fulfillment. I want us to see the reality of who we are so that we can stop living a lie or living underneath the wrong perspective, living with the wrong anticipation, living with the wrong ideas of ourselves. Because many times, we don't just define ourselves by the reflection of the good mirror, but a lot of us define ourselves and find our identity in a carnival mirror. We look at the mirror and go, you know, I'm, I'm really this tall, but in reality, no, I'm actually this tall. And, and, and when I look at the mirror, I'm, I'm actually this fat, but no, in reality, I'm really this size. And we have a messed up view of who we are. So with that, let's read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Uh, He says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Just think. Of that statement right there. Then he goes on verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of His nature. And, if that's not enough, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He didn't just do an okay job. He did such a good job and such infinite perfection in His job that now He sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father... Let's pray as we study Christ and His fulfillment of all of Scripture, that that we would find out first really who Jesus is, and then we'd find out who we are in light of who Jesus is. Father, let us not miss this. It's in your Son's name we pray, amen. So my main proposition for us this morning is this, see Christ. See your reality. Main problems, one thing I would encourage you to take away from today it is see Christ and see your reality. See Christ, see who He is. So how you define Christ is going to affect how you see yourself. And then the encouragement is that we are to see ourselves as we see Christ. So there's kind of two parts of this equation that we have to get right if we're going to live this life as the way God has called us to live this life and enjoy this life and all other implications and applications of that thought. So the more clearly I put it this way the more clearly we understand Christ as revealed in Scripture, as the one who fulfills the old who the old I'm sorry, in Scripture as the one who fulfills all that the Old Testament speaks of the more we understand the reality of what the Old Testament was prophesying, and therefore we'll understand the reality of who we are. So we're going to see today how and why we should find our identity in nothing else other than Jesus Christ. When we understand who Christ is, we will understand the reality of who we are. But for now, I want you to consider your identity. I want you to consider when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Here are some examples. I am a failure because when I look at my marriage, it does not reflect the gospel. Maybe you find your identity in your marriage or lack thereof. I am discouraged. Another thought: I am discouraged because when I look at my job. I'm not able to control the situation such that it guarantees the perfect outcome. Maybe you find your identity in your job. On the other hand, maybe I'm fantastic because of my place of employment. I'm the most productive person there. Maybe you find your identity in that. Maybe I'm awesome because my marriage is a model for all those around me. Maybe you find your identity there. See, I, I know most of us, here's the deal. Most of us mentally are going to say, Yeah, I know that that's wrong. I should not find my identity in those things, right? I mean, we're, that's where we're at. I mean, I think most of us would at least give an intellectual assent to that's wrong. So maybe the more helpful test would be when do you feel like your life is crumbling? or when thing is, when the roof is falling on top of you, or when do you feel like I've lost hope, or I am emotionally distraught, and the thing to which it's causing that is probably the place that you're finding your identity in. Maybe you have much discomfort in life. And so when things are not going well, because you find your identity and you place your hope in that, then life feels like you're falling apart. So, I don't want you just to think mentally, where is that at? But drawing the connection to my heart, where do you find your identity at? What mirror are you looking in? The reality is, for those who are followers of Christ, when we look at the mirror of the Bible, our identity is found in Christ who He is. So, with all that said, we're moving into this idea of the prophecy fulfilled. And so we've got to keep this identity thing in the back of our minds, and we're going to move forward with how is everything we've been talking about so far in this series, what does this have to do now with the gospel and with Jesus Christ? So last week, John talks about the the kingdom of prophecy. How the kingdom is prophesied. How Jeremiah speaks of it being written on our hearts. And Noah, uh, Moses, not Noah, but Moses, yearns or longs for a day where it will be written on our hearts, and and that uh, God's presence will be with us, not in a place, but inside, and and all these different things where 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 it will be an everlasting covenant, something that will will succeed and be successful. And so today we're going to talk about how all of the Old Testament as prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, here's where we're at. Oftentimes when it comes to connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament, many Christians think of it as merely a few prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. So it's kind of like this. I mean, I know, I, like the typical Christian mind, uh, evangelical in, in North America, we in America particularly, we look at the Bible, we go, okay, there's the creation account, that's pretty cool. Then we have like Noah and uh, Goliath, and we might know about David. And then we know that somehow some of that stuff points to Jesus. And then it's like, ah, now we got Jesus. And that's kind of the extent of our OT knowledge uh, and its application. But I would argue, as we work through this, that being a Christian requires a certain interpretation of the Scriptures. It's not just a good idea, but it requires a certain interpretation. we're going to talk about that in just a second. But this is why others interpret things differently. Like, for example, Jews. They interpret the Scriptures tragically differently because Christ is not the interpretive key. He he doesn't bring clarity to the Old Testament. Now, they might understand some of the nuances of history and culture within the Old Testament, arguably, and I guarantee, better than most of us do, but ultimately they're not going to come out with the right product because they don't have the right key to discover that product. I would argue the same thing with Catholics. They have Jesus, but when they approach Scripture, they approach Scripture with Jesus plus tradition and plus whatever else, rituals and things like that, in which to interpret Scripture. And and if you have a mixed bag of keys, you're going to come out with the wrong product once again. I would argue modern Baptists in our culture today do the same thing. Their interpretive key is what feels right or what mom and dad has taught them versus Scripture being interpreted by the Christ event, by Jesus, by the gospel. More broadly, by the New Testament would help us interpret the Old Testament. So the problem is when, when we get to this, if you're looking at other religions, denominations even, if it's Jesus plus something else is our interpretive key then we're going to come up with a different product. And I, of course, would believe and argue that it would be the wrong product. It would be false. So this is why we don't just approach the Old Testament and, and take it at, like, disconnected from Jesus and disconnected from the New Testament. We have to approach it and go, how does Christ fulfill this and from there find God's intent in this, an application for us, we don't start here and interpret the New Testament this way, although it does have implications going that direction. But we start with the gospel and look back. I like what Graham, Gold, Graham Goldsworthy says. He says this To be a Christian is to recognize in Jesus Christ the goal of all things, including the goal of the history of redemption. Because Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God when we see Him as the one towards whom all the former revelation of God is leading and in whom it is fulfilled and given its meaning. We see this in Christ. It's the goal to which everything is aiming. So the Old Testament anticipates the New Testament, but let's look and see what the New Testament says about this. Where are we getting this? Is this just something we're pulling out of the air where we go, well, we really like Jesus, and so we want to take Him and make Him, you know, interpret everything. Like, is this something we're pulling out of the air? I don't think we are. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 12, again, verse 1, we just read, Long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. So we know now that God is speaking through Jesus. We know that He spoke through the fathers, okay? But let's move on. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's a very bold statement. And that's a key statement for us. If all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Him, then when we look at the promises of God, to find out what God was aiming at, we just look at Jesus. What was the goal? What was this promise to look like? So, think about this. So He makes this promise and it's fulfilled in Jesus that He gives us a picture of what He intended in the promise and particularly what He intended for His people to look like underneath of that promise and through that promise. So when we get to the Old Testament and we go, what was His goal in this promise or goal in this law? We see its fulfillment in Jesus and we go, ah, that's what, Jesus, that's what God was looking for. That's what his goal was. That's what his intent in these set of rules or these promises or this prophecy, it was to look like this. Acts 13, 32-33. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. And then the verse we've been looking at and was reminded of last week, Luke 24 verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. So as we make this move toward fulfillment, this move, this is what we're going to look at today, how is it? Fulfilled in Jesus. Let me make a few few more comments and commentary here for us. First of all, the New Testament never leads us to expect that there will be any fulfillment of the Old Testament promises other than their fulfillment in Christ. I realize it's a fairly bold statement, but I don't see it other than its fulfillment in Christ. For example, I would argue we are never encouraged to look for their fulfillment in the state of Israel and to expect a new temple to be built there. I don't, I don't, in the New Testament, I don't see that painted, that picture for us. And I think this would be to, to, to expect a renewal of the model that has been dismantled in Christ, is to miss the point of Christ. Now we know there's a kingdom coming, we know that God's going to reign from Jerusalem, but for us, I would argue, to be looking for a physical temple, a reconstruction of the shadow, is to miss the reality of Jesus. So the Old Testament progresses towards the fulfillment in the New Testament. This does not mean, though, hear me clearly, that we just simply need to understand Jesus at the end of the process. That's where most Christians go wrong. Is that we skip all of this and just get to Jesus at the end. And we don't see him in line of the whole thing. And we don't let him particularly interpret the whole thing. This means the whole Bible must be understood in line of the gospel. It means that Jesus is the key to interpreting the whole thing. So the task before us is to determine how Jesus interprets the Bible, how the gospel interprets the Bible. To do this, though, we need to answer one question first, and that is, what is the gospel? What do we mean by the gospel? So the gospel is what God has done for us in Christ for our salvation. That's a very simplified statement of the gospel. What God has done for us in Christ for our salvation. Now, there's two natures to distinguish in that statement, okay? One is what God does for us, and then what God does in us. Two aspects. But the key, though, and this is where, again, where we kind of go awry, is we separate those things. They're inseparable, but they're distinguishable. The difference? They're distinguishable, but not inseparable. So what God does in us must result in what God has done for us, must result in what God does in us. We cannot separate the gospel from the fruit of the gospel. <clears throat> so it is by the gospel that we are born again. Right, it's 1 Peter 1. It is the gospel that evokes true faith, Romans 10. And it's the gospel which produces the sanctified or spirit-filled life, Colossians 1. So now, let's be a little more specific about what it means for the gospel to fulfill the Old Testament hope of the coming kingdom. What does it mean for that? So we've seen the kingdom idea in the Old Testament. God's people, God's place, God's rule, and God's blessing. And we've seen it expressed so far. If I can take and just paint a big, broad stroke for you guys, it would be this. Three epics in Scripture. One, the first epic being Eden. The Eden epic. We see God's people, God's place under God's rule. Then the next kind of big epic, I know it spans a lot of time, but it would be Israel's history. So another big epic. The next epic in God's kingdom. Then the third epic would be the, the prophecy, or a fancy word of saying it, prophetic futurism. All right, so, this is where, where he's prophesying of this kingdom to come. That would be kind of the third big epic if you'd go back and trace these in scripture. Well, the fourth epic would be the gospel and the kingdom through the gospel. If the gospel fulfills the expectations of the kingdom, right? if it fulfills the expectations of the kingdom, then we should be able to discern how this is so by looking at the New Testament evidence. Okay? If if this is so, we should be able to figure out how it's happening according to the New Testament evidence. So, At this point, I want to help us with a uh, a fancy word for this would be our, our hermeneutic or another interpretation piece when it comes to scripture or to biblical interpretation. So, if you take the epic concept, follow me on this. With those epics, we see a progressive nature of revelation in the various epics of the kingdom revelation. So there is a progressive reveal. We talked about this last week, how it's kind of like a, like, a, like a telescope, like a telescopic aspect of it, or, or a description of it, where it, it is getting more clear, it's getting more inclusive as it, as it goes. It's getting the pictures progressively being revealed. So we see, a, a when you look at those, We see a diversity of expression within an overall unity of the kingdom. So you see diversity in each of these expressions. So Eden, to Israel, to prophetic kingdom, to the gospel. Each one represents the same reality, but expresses each reality in a different yet related way. So the Israel expression, the Israelite expression of the kingdom is similar and related to the expression of the kingdom in the garden, but yet different. It's more clearly seen. There's there's more aspects to it. The picture has been filled in with more color. Same thing when we get to the kingdom of prophecy. The picture is painted in more clearly. And then when we get to the gospel... It's painted in, maybe not from our perspective, complete, but it is complete in Jesus. And then the rest of creation from will be completed through him. It will be brought back. So they're related, but yet different. Each kingdom expression differs from that which preceded it. It looks a little different, but it's related. Most Christians, I don't think, understand the implications of this fact. I mean, that's, if you look at that, I mean, it's not an arguable thing. It's very clear. This is not our interpretation versus their interpretation. If it's clearly, if you, you see the kingdom here and, and the aspects of it, and it's revealed more clearly here, and then revealed more clearly here, and then in Jesus. But most Christians don't understand the implications of this. The New Testament says that the reality is in the gospel. It's in Christ Himself. We've seen this already as we looked at those few verses from the New Testament. So, let me comment on this. Many Christians believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture, right? Do you all believe in that? I do. The inspiration and authority of Scripture. If not, we don't have a whole lot of leg to stand on. We believe that. This is good. But I think what often goes wrong in that is that they believe, because of the inspiration and authority of Scripture, that it requires what we call a literal interpretation of Scripture. But I don't think that this is so. If by literal, we mean that the fulfillment of the prophecy must be in the precise terms of the prophecy. Or, if by literal we mean that the future is only a repetition of the foreshadowing. Because if that's so, then it stops in the garden. And if that's so, if we at least make it to Israelites, it stops there. Because Jesus does not fulfill the precise terms in a replicated fashion of the Old Testament? Why do you think the Jews were looking for this grand king that would come and stop the Romans? But he doesn't. But the Bible tells us that they've all found their answers in Jesus. Now yes, God will establish his, His rule in a physical form like that. But we see Christ fulfilling this in a much different way. In a different term. Not in the exact term of the old. It looks a little different. Let me give you an illustration. Or, uh, let me, I'm sorry. Let me make a couple more comments real quick. I don't think the New Testament knows anything of this kind of literalism. Uh, it repeatedly proclaims that Christ is the fulfillment of these terms, images, promises, and foreshadowing in the Old Testament, which were presented in a way that is different from the fulfillment, so here's the kind of the interpretive uh, point here is that the interpretation of the Old Testament should not be literal but christological. We view it through the gospel. That's what I'm arguing for is that we view it through the lens of the gospel. So, the coming of Christ transforms all the kingdom terms of the Old Testament into gospel reality. So let me give you an illustration. Imagine I, as a father, 20 years prior to the invention of the automobile, I know can't really imagine what that's like to not have cars, but 20 years prior to the invention of the automobile, I promised my son that I will buy him a horse as a means of transportation for him. So, over the next, and I, I give him some things to live by and, and to work towards. And so 20 years pass, and the invention of the automobile has has come. The the cars are here, they're moving around, and I, as his father, can afford a car, no problem. And it comes time now for me to buy him a horse. But instead, I buy him an automobile. Now, did I break my promise to him? I would argue not. I was buying him a means of transportation. Okay? Now, follow me. I was buying him a means of transportation, but I had to speak the means of transportation in a category that he understood. We didn't have the category of cars or automobiles. If i just said, dude, I'm going to buy you a car in 20 years, he's going to go, what the heck is a car? I don't want that. I want a horse. It doesn't make any sense. He doesn't have the category in his mind to even think about that. Now, on the flip side, now that we have the category of a car, what if I buy him a horse I'm cheating him, settling for something substandard, for a shadow of that which was to come. And so, when I give the promise, the promise is fulfilled, but not in the precise terms of that which was back here. But I had to speak it in a category that he understood that my son understood. Chris Wright says this, "...to look for direct fulfillments of, say, Ezekiel in the 20th century Middle East, is to bypass and short-circuit the reality and the finality of what we already have in Christ as the fulfillment of those great assurances. It is like taking delivery of the motor car, but still expecting to receive the horse." So, to see Christ, bring us back in here. It's to see our reality. So the gospel is the interpretive key. Just a quick review of the entire Bible, for it all speaks of Jesus. If we find our identity in Jesus, as we see Him, we see ourselves. We see our worth, our righteousness as His righteousness, or we see His righteousness as our righteousness rather, our inheritance as Him. So, my encouragement is for us to find our identity in Jesus as the New Testament reveals Him and His fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. So, that's a really long introduction to how does Jesus fulfill. So, if that's kind of the pieces we're looking at. So, if I could kind of paint this broad stroke for you. Our identity found in Christ, we're going to see that as He fulfills the Old Testament. And then we just took a little bit of a detour in there to talk about some interpretation aspects of Scripture that are implications of this identity and this fulfillment of Jesus. Does that make sense? All right, so we just kind of did a little dance to the side, and now we're going to come back into the main vein of thought here. That was, not a, that was a planned rabbit trail, if, uh, if anything. So now, John the Baptist. So we have all this kingdom revelation in scripture. Now we get to John the Baptist. We're going to fly through some of this. Mark 1, verse 1 through 3. He says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark quotes Isaiah and Malachi, both Both of these Old Testament prophets foretold of a man who would come before God's king to announce his arrival. And Mark identifies John the Baptist as the one who delivers this news. Here's the message. The message is that the exile of God's people is about to end and all the promises of God are about to be fulfilled. This is what's getting ready to happen. John is saying, this is coming. Mark 1, verse 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we don't see the phrase kingdom of God much in the Old Testament, but Jesus uses it often to sum up the prophetic hope of the Old Testament. I mean, it's a very common theme in Jesus' the kingdom of God as fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic hope. So Jesus knows that he has come in fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 13, verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears for they hear. For truly, listen to these. I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Think about what he's saying. Thousands of years, years of history and pain and turmoil, and looking forward, trusting in God. And he's saying they longed for this day but they never heard it. And you are here, and you hear it. So here's what we have. We have the Garden of Eden as the initial display of God's kingdom. Then the Israelites is the next transformation or the next progressive revelation of the kingdom. It's different, yet related. Then we have the prophecy of the coming kingdom. Again, different, Yet related, different terms, or similar terms, or same terms but different fulfillment, similar yet related. Then we have the gospel, different yet related, and the gospel being the reality to which it was pointing towards. So, what we want to do the remainder of the time is look at the transformation of the kingdom in the gospel, and let's see the reality of what the Old Testament was speaking of. Make sense? We see what the Old Testament was speaking of. This is a, again a very broad stroke. It's the best we can do in a short amount of time. So when we look at the Old Testament, we ask this question. When it comes to interpreting, that the very basic form, when it comes to interpreting the Old Testament, we ask this question: what was the intent? And we discover the intent in the fulfillment of that. We've already said this multiple times today, which is Jesus. So. What we're going to do now, we're just going to walk through God's people, God's place, God's rule, and what that looks like for the gospel in light of the Old Testament. All right, first of all, God's people. Let's think about this. Adam failed at reflecting the image of God, didn't he? He messed up royally. He was kicked out of the garden. Then God makes a new start with the Israelites. They're called to reflect God's character as they obeyed the law. God gave them the law to help them reflect the image of God. They too failed and were, excuse me, were sent into exile. But here's the deal. Where all those who fail before Him, Jesus Christ does not fail. He succeeds. So first we need to see Jesus is the true Adam. Jesus is the true Adam. Adam. A couple points of clarification in that. The gospel speaks of Jesus' true humanity. This is where I think in our modern culture we've so deified Jesus that we miss a lot of its application of his humanity, but we also miss this key thing of him being the head of our race. He was born a baby. He was a descendant from Adam. You can look at Luke 3 for that. I love how Luke's genealogy traces Adam, not back to Abraham, but all the way back to, I'm sorry, Jesus' genealogy, not just back to Abraham, but back all the way to Adam. Showing us that Jesus, in the same lineage, he comes from man, but again will be our new head. He identifies with the human race through baptism. I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's not being baptized because he was just saved He's being baptized because He's identifying with us, and we identify with Him when we are subsequently baptized. But Jesus will not sin as Adam did, right? He does not sin. And even though He does not sin, He willingly faces the punishment that we deserve for that sin. Let's read Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's a praise God, right? That's a praise God. Jesus is the anti-type of Adam. He is the reality of what Adam was foreshadowing. Remember, this is not God's backup plan. God had this plan from the very beginning. That he would reveal himself progressively over time, starting with the garden. And then the reality of God's creation... Be found in Jesus. This creation that will be made new and will never fail for all of eternity. Next point: Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. So Jesus, if you just study the Gospels, is taken back to taken back to Egypt by Joseph and Mary in order to protect him from persecution. Matthew 2.15, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now it's just not coincidence that Matthew here is, a, is saying that Jesus came from Egypt. He's deliberately connecting Jesus with Israel. He's identifying Jesus with Israel he's coming from Egypt. And then what's interesting is, after when Jesus gets ready to start his ministry, where does he go? He goes to the wilderness. But what happens in the wilderness as opposed to the nation of Israel? He succeeds, right? He does not. He is tempted just as they were tempted, but where they failed, he does not fail. So Jesus succeeds, he's the true Israel. Think about the 12 tribes of Israel. What does Jesus do? He calls 12 disciples. Is He not? I don't think the choice of 12 is any coincidence. He's calling together a new Israel. 12 disciples as the foundation rather than 12 tribes. Matthew 4 verse 18. You can take a look at that later. The old Israel rejects Jesus and will in turn be rejected by God. What does Matthew 21 say? Verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. Then Jesus foretells of the destruction of Jerusalem as the awful expression of God's judgment. The destruction of Israel or Jerusalem. Luke nineteen forty three through forty four, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and him you, uh, and him you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's interesting is that then in AD seventy, shortly after Jesus speaks these words, the Romans carry out the destruction of the temple destroyed, never to be utilized as that place again. From this point forward, the true Israel will not consist of land or those who are physically descendants of Abraham. It rather consists of those who are spiritual descendants, those who are both Jew and Gentile. Romans 4.16, he says this, Paul says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. If Jesus is the new Israel, then there's no need for distinction between Jew and Gentile. We are inheritors of that. I don't see that necessity. Talk about application. Let's stop turning to Adam as the head of our race. Why do we find our identity in that which is under Adam? Whenever we trust in anything else other than Jesus, we act as if we want Adam as our head. Do you know what you're turning back to? We're trying to find our identity in something else. Maybe, maybe you trust in the affirmation of those around you. For you, you value their opinions more than you value God's. Ultimately, we're taking things and placing our hope and trust in them rather than Jesus. When we do that, we're placing our hope and trust in that which is under Adam. And we have thousands of years of history to show the results of that. And yet, day in and day out, we continue to turn to Adam as our head, to find our righteousness, to find our hope and our joy and our fulfillment and that which falls underneath Adam when we have thousands of years of history showing us that that doesn't work. And it won't work today. We find it in Christ in Christ alone. Next thing, live as God's people. Live as God's people. In Jesus Christ, our position is secured as perfectly the people of God. Did you hear that, church? In Christ, our position as the people of God is eternally and perfectly secured in Jesus. We have hope. So we're talking about God's people. Let's talk about God's place. Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence, right? Before the fall, God walks in the garden. Adam and Eve enjoy His presence, God also dwelt with the Israelites by living in the tabernacle and then in the temple. He lives in the tabernacle and the temple. But this was just a shadow pointing towards the reality. First we see that Jesus is the true tabernacle. John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hmm. Next, Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. So Jesus clears the temple. You guys remember this story. He comes in, people had set up their own businesses, he clears the temple. As he does this the Jews ask him upon what authority can he do this. Right? He's in the temple the Jews go whoa 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 what are you doing? John chapter 2 verse 18 he says so the Jews said to him What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them Destroy this temple and in 3 days I will raise it up. The Jews then answered It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus, or the temple, is soon to be destroyed. We see this. Jesus' body was destroyed and then raised again. So the deal is this. If we want to meet with God, we must go not to a building, but to Jesus. Jesus. You know, in Baptist culture, we we think of salvation. You know, that happens on Sunday morning. You've got to walk forward to an aisle. And, and even, even here, we have some lingerings in our body that, that to lead someone to the gospel, I've got to bring them to church. That's just not the case. The gospel's in you. And you take the gospel to them. They can be redeemed at lunch break. Or if you don't get in trouble, you can... Redeem while you're working. I'm just kidding. Like, you no, know, be faithful to your work, and then lead him to Jesus at lunch. We don't have to take him to a temple. This is different. God, Jesus is the temple. John 7, verse 37 through 38 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think Jesus here is thinking of Ezekiel's promise of the new temple. Go back and read Ezekiel, the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 47. We don't have time this morning. But Jesus is saying, that which was prophesied in Ezekiel about the temple is a reality in me. It talks about these waters flowing, these living waters flowing from the temple. And Jesus says, that's me. Application. Christians, you may enter into the presence of God as Jesus is the true tabernacle and the true temple. Jesus is the place where we may enter perfectly into God's presence. But we often try to enter into God's presence by our own means, don't we? Maybe by saying the right prayers. Maybe if I just say the right prayers, I can enter into God's presence. Maybe by living the right life or singing the right songs. Maybe waiting for that right emotional experience and I can enter into the presence of God. Maybe if I say the right doctrine, I will enter into the presence of God. We don't enter into the presence of God by any of those things. We enter the presence of God by Jesus and Jesus alone. We boast in Him. We often, though, some of us, we try to enter the presence of God by our own means. Some of us don't even care about entering into the presence of God. I would say there's two two issues there. Maybe you're not a believer. Or maybe you've been trying to enter into the presence of God by your own means for so long. And because of that, you've not entered into the presence of God that you've forgotten what it's like. As a Christian, I would say, stop. Enter into the presence of God by Jesus. And Jesus alone. If you're not a believer... Find Christ, and you can enter into the presence of God. Last main point, God's rule and blessing. God's rule and blessing. So Jesus introduces the new covenant. Jesus has come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. It's kind of the beginning of the new covenant. He perfectly obeys it. He uniquely, therefore, does not need to face the curse of judgment. So because of the law, and we're going to inevitably fail the law, the curse is judgment. But Jesus doesn't have to face that curse. But Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. By facing that death for us. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might, become, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. As a result, Romans 8 verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So He takes our sin, we get His righteousness. What a deal! Whoa! Whoa! What a deal. He takes all the crap we have and we get all the gold and riches that he has. The more you understand the magnitude of the crap we have, the more you understand the magnitude of that. And then the more you understand the magnitude of the riches he has, the more you understand the magnitude of that statement. He takes our sin, we get His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus' death introduces the new covenant. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus introduces a new covenant. Jesus is also the new king. The prophets made it clear that God's promises would be fulfilled by a new king, a descendant of David. His rule will introduce a new age in which the effects of the fall will be undone. Do you hear me? This king introduces an age in which the effects of the fall will be undone. I hope this next thought to bring something to a very new light for you as it was for me. Jesus' miracles point to this reality. When he heals people of diseases... This is the evil effects of the fall being undone. Right? Like it's not just Jesus is doing cool things so that people give him attention, he is bringing about the kingdom. Because that which is a result of evil, and that's all of our physical abnormalities, all of our diseases, all the disease that is our tongue, all those things. When God, when Christ comes and He heals people of those diseases, it is the redoing, the remaking, the recreating of that which fell thousands of years ago. Jesus is doing that. He's displaying this for us. When Jesus heals the demon-possessed man. This is the evil effects of the fall being undone before their very eyes. Like the kingdom is coming upon them. What he's literally saying, it, it is coming. Like it's being remade in before your very eyes. That which is evil is being turned back to that which is good. And you can see it. And they could see it. And we have the accounts of it. And we even see examples of this today. The Pharisees reply, though, Matthew 12, verse 22, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Ah, I love the wittiness of our Savior, right? He says, but, and if I cast out the demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? <laughs> therefore they will be your judges but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons listen to this then the kingdom of God has come upon you and I hope you see in this big picture of God's story what the magnitude of what Jesus is saying to them and the kingdom of God is here The kingdom of God has come because God's king is here. When Jesus dies in his weakness, it is the moment of his greatest victory. Think about this. When he defeats his enemies and his people are set free. When we think of a king, we think of dictatorship and rulership and this big materialistic kingdom. For Jesus, the greatest moment here is when his enemies are defeated and his people are set free. And that happens with a crown of thorns on a wooden cross. Then this king is resurrected, proclaiming that he is not just the son of David, but his resurrection proclaims that he's the son of God to be exalted eternally forever. So, Jesus is the new king. Jesus is the source of God's blessing. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is what? Rest was the goal of God's creation. Our uneasiness, our worry, our life without this... Comfort in the gospel is a reflection, is a reality of the effects of the fall. But when we live in rest in the gospel, and at peace in the gospel, we're reflecting the reality of the new creation. And the goal to which God created everything. God wants us to share in His rest. Adam and Eve enjoyed the rest before the fall but then after it was ruined because of sin the israelites knew something of rest in the promised land and in the promised kingdom or in the partial kingdom but it was a pale reflection of what god gives us now in christ if we place our trust in jesus as our savior we can experience life as it was designed to be 2 corinthians 5:17 therefore if anyone is in christ he is what church he's a new creation Listen to this. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A couple points of application Jesus fulfills the law. You now live by God's intent displayed in the law. This is how we see value in the law. But we don't live under the law. Next application, Jesus is the king of your life. The issue is not whether or not he is the king. The issue is whether or not you follow this king. The miraculous work of your transformed heart and subsequent fruit is a tangible display of the progressive reality of the new creation. As Christ is king in your life and your heart is transformed, this displays the reality of the new creation. Last point of application find your rest in Jesus. He is the new creation. So, question where are you trying to find your rest? Trying to find rest in laziness? Are you trying to find your rest in your finances? trying to find your rest in the right circumstances. Find your rest in Christ. You know, I I have to say this. As a shepherd here, I run into uneasy, burdened, hopeless, helpless people all the time, even in this church. And we have no reason to be hopeless, helpless, burdened people. Christ, bore that burden, and we are renewed in Him. We find our rest in Him. We find our freedom in Him. Not in, we don't find, see here, We try, some of us try to find our freedom from the burdens of this life. We find our freedom in Christ. So it's not this, well, I just need to not do as much, right? and maybe some of us do need to reevaluate how we spend our time, some of us spend too much, we're too busy, some of us are not. But, but either way, we can't find our rest in either of those actions. We find our rest in Christ. And then we become, through that, we become good stewards of our time. So your heart, let it find rest in God. So my question is this. Where do you find your identity? Do you find it in the shadows of of this world that simply reflect the reality? Do you find in the shadows of this world that are not the real thing? Or do you find them in the reality that is Jesus Christ? Because the Old Testament anticipates the fulfillment of it in Jesus. The entire thing. Jesus is the new creation. Our identity is found in Him. Let me end with this illustration. Um, The other day, Hayden, it was the, I think the day I got back from Haiti, uh, it was Sunday, and uh, we're sitting in the living, or in the kitchen area, and Hayden decides he's going to finally take his first few steps, like, and it made me feel s- super special, right, because, like, I, I figured he was going to do it while dad was gone in Haiti, and instead I get back, and and here he's, he. We're kind of sitting in the living room, and I'm like, all right, dude, come on, it's time. Like, start walking, you know? And uh, so I kind of give his hand, I kind of take, and I kind of scoot away from him, and he takes like four or five steps and just falls into me. As he begins to walk, and even to this day, he's not walking full time, but as a parent, you find so much joy in that, right? Parents find joy in their kids taking that next step. Uh, that next life movement. And, and as I reflected on that this past week, I thought, we were created to progress in such a manner. Like we are created, even physically, to one day walk. Some people are not blessed with that opportunity. Some kids are born with a physical uh, issue which they cannot walk. And the reality is is that that is the effects of the fall. We were created for this, but God in His sovereignty allows some of those effects to take place. It's not the kid's fault. It's the fall's fault. It's, It's all of mankind's fault. And as I look at my son, I see him progress in that manner. I see that God, he is becoming the creation that God has called him to be. And so the challenge in that moment is not for me to find my identity, find my fulfillment in the steps taken by my son, but to find my identity and my fulfillment in Christ who is bringing about the creation in my son. And he's growing him into what God has created him to be. Now he'll one day need through to through Jesus to overcome the effects ultimately of the fall. But we see in particularly when people are healed physically. But I would argue even more so when we see people here healed spiritually. We see the effects of the fall being renewed, being changed, being brought back. And so my encouragement to you, as God's Word would say, is find our identity in Christ. Find your fulfillment, your joy in Him, because He is the fulfillment of it all. And when we see Him, we should see ourselves. Let's pray. I want to ask the band to come up as we sing. Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity to worship you this morning in word. Father, I pray that you are honored and glorified. As we seek to understand your word and to believe it and to live it, I know the challenge is all of this world wants to take. our our vision and our focus and make us focus on it and all this world when we look at it if we look at it to find who we are it's like looking in a carnival mirror but instead when we look at Christ we find the reality of what we are meant to be and who we are now covered underneath the blood and who we are being made into as we progress towards heaven so fathers pray that in these next few moments that we would take some time to reflect on what we look like in Christ instead of what we've been trying to make of ourselves in this world. And Father, I want to give you the praise for all that you're doing, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us?